that's critically important, by the way. When I started investing, I did it all backwards. And I would take way too much emphasis on the deal itself. And then I would consider the market. And last, I would look at the team. It To me, in my opinion, it's the exact opposite. You need to start vetting the operator, their track record, their experience. Do you get along with them? Is your you know philosophy on investing aligned? You know, this is this is a relationship business. You're going to be in monthly communication or quarterly communication for years with these folks. You definitely want to know them. You definitely want to trust them uh, and, and not make that mistake of finding out six months later that this is their first deal and they're kind of gambling with your money and hoping it goes well. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great, but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We are buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage, on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. And you're listening to The Road to Family Freedom. Our guest this week is a full-time passive investor. He's invested in over 28 passive syndications across 14 different firms. He's also the Director of Investor Relations at Ashcroft Capital. And if you want to schedule a free 15-minute Q&A with him, we'll give you the details in just a moment. Travis Watts, welcome to The Road to Family Freedom. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Okay. So I like to get this stuff out of the way uh, right away from the start. So to schedule a free Q&A with Travis and get a free PDF guide on understanding real estate uh, private placements, go to calendly.com slash Travis Watts. I'll repeat that at the end and the link will also be in the show notes. Uh, also, full disclosure, we are investors in one of Ashcroft Capital's syndications. I don't think we're under any legal obligation to disclose that, but I believe in transparency. So, so Travis, um, you've been investing in real estate since 2009. You've done single family, multifamily, even some vacation rentals. Uh, give us a quick overview of what your real estate investment journey looks like. Oh, man, it's been a crazy journey. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing in 2009. I just knew from a couple books I had read, I wanted to get into real estate in some way at some point. Seemed like a good enough time. Uh, housing had really come down uh, in price in my local market, as it did in many markets. And it was just an opportunity for me to jump in. Uh, my first property is a two-bed, one-bath uh, condo, actually. I moved in as an owner-occupant. I did a little house hacking, so I rented out uh, the other spare bedroom. And when I realized that 
passively, uh, somebody was actually paying my mortgage for me and I was living for free. It was kind of a, a bigger eye opener than just the books I had read. So that inspired me to keep going. So I jumped into, as you pointed out, fix and flips, buy and holds, vacation rentals, house hacking, and all my owner-occupied homes I would move into, fix them up, and usually sell them in about two years uh, for some tax-free uh, capital gains. So yeah, that led me to, um, I, was, I was also, I should point out, pretty important key point in my story. I was working in the oil industry. Uh, 14 hours per day, 98-hour work weeks, often away from home, later overseas in the Middle East. And between trying to hold down that career with those hours and balance my real estate journey, uh, that was uh, not sustainable. So, <laughs> uh, so I, be, before I burned out, I made it to 2015. So, you know, whatever that is, five, six years, and completely was burned out. I uh, could not scale that model, even with property managers. And so I started seeking a way to be a passive investor, literally a hands-off investor, which led me to private placements, you know, syndications, things like that. And so I became a full-time passive investor. I don't know that I really intended to do that, but I fell in love with the model and the philosophy behind being able to move and be mobile and travel. And I really didn't want to be in the business of real estate. I just wanted to be an investor in real estate. That makes sense. Do you want to give us kind of a quick overview of what a syndication is? Sure. Yeah. The, so private placements are just private offerings, much like, you know, if you relate it to say the stock market, you may be familiar with like a, a REIT, a real estate investment trust, something that's publicly traded that kind of goes up and down with the stock market. A private placement is just a private offering that's not publicly traded. So it can work very much in the same way without that volatility. That's tied to the stock market. Uh, so a syndication is basically a, a group of investors coming together, each pitching in, let's say, $50,000, $100,000 piece to buy a large property, like an apartment community. So a, a 300-unit apartment building, or maybe you've got 100 or 200 investors on that project. So uh, the beauty as a, as a limited partner, which means, you know, the, the passive investor, which is what I am in, in all of these, is that you can literally put in the front-loaded work to vet the operator and vet the deal, make a decision, send in your funds, and then you're done. So you sit back anywhere from three years, five years, seven years, depends on the business plan. And uh, you can just collect what some people call their mailbox money. Uh, I, I try to target the offerings that do monthly distributions because it's my income. But uh, you know, there, there's quarterly and, and monthly and all kinds of variations of that. But that's kind of what a sentence is. Gotcha. So you invested in your first syndication in 2015. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what type of deal was it? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> so I didn't know what I didn't know. So I found a local operator. Uh, I was in Colorado at the time. So it was a, a Denver based operator. Don't know why I felt that was important. The property wasn't actually in Colorado. Uh, but I guess just being neighborly, you know, uh, maybe I know where I know where you live, right? <laughs> you screw me over. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so that, it was a value add deal. It was out in Arizona. Um, actually, that one, I think was out in Ohio. But in any case, uh, yeah, it, it was meant to be a five year hold, potentially longer, ended up being more like a six to 12 month hold. So much shorter than anticipated. Mm -hmm. Uh, the operator wasn't very experienced. A lot of things kind of went wrong with the deal, but we all ended up profitable 
out of the whole thing because we did buy at a great price in a good market. So, uh, so yeah, that was that was the first deal. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that when I was placing capital in you know fifty hundred k increments that this was the real deal. I wasn't going to get scammed or something. So I waited to see how the reporting worked and made sure the distributions came through, made sure I had open communication. And I did. And I fell in love with that philosophy. As I said, even though that particular deal was shorter than expected, we all actually achieved what we set out to achieve as far as returns go. Um, so I did many more. I partnered with 14 operators in the space. And as you said, about 28, 30 deals, somewhere in that okay. uh, range. So on that first deal, uh, you you mentioned you know fifty to hundred. Was that you know was that what you're in for? Is fifty? Uh, the first one was fifty. The second one, I think, was a hundred that I did. But these were just the minimum investments for those particular operators. Another thing that I learned along the way is I prefer to do the minimums with a new operator just to see how things go. Uh, I'm not big into you know <laughs> putting two hundred, three hundred k into something and then turns out you don't like that operator. That's going to be a long journey for you. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's that's kind of how it started. Uh, you know, when you're a passive investor, specifically full time, or if you're going to do many different deals, the the great part is that you can get that diversification nationwide with different operators and different asset classes. But you are trading off your control, and I, I fully recognize there's a lot of folks that have a hard time with that, and so it may not be the right type of investment. For those folks, if you love to be hands-on and make all the decisions and find the deals yourself, uh, this is the opposite of that. So, yeah. I was just going to say, you said that you've invested in multiple asset classes, so not just in the multifamily sphere. Correct. Yeah. So about eighty percent has been value-add B and C class multifamily. Usually five-year holds. It just depends on the operator. But I have also invested in self-storage and first lien notes and ATM machines and publicly traded REITs and you know other types of uh, categories. What I try to target at the end of the day is uh, monthly distributions and value-add types of projects uh, with as low leverage as reasonably possible and preferred returns, things like that. Yeah. And for our... our our listeners who are familiar with the Burr method, which we we talk about a lot, we've interviewed a lot of people. This is basically the Burr method on a large scale. I mean, you're basically buying a, a property that you're then able to add value to, which then allows you to increase the cash flow, increase the value, and then a lot of times you can, uh, if if you're fortunate, if things go well, you're able to pull that capital back out um, even before you may end up selling the property. Correct. Yep. And so that's an, another important note is each operator usually specializes in a particular style of business plan. Um, so Ashcroft, for example, just to use one example, typically do five-year holds where they're trying to renovate and then do a disposition or a sale within that time frame. There's other groups I've invested with where they never target to sell. It's not to say that they won't or that they don't. It's just, it might happen in three years, it might happen in 10 years, it might happen in 20 years with the idea that hopefully down the road, you'll be able to refinance and pull back some of your investment, if not all of it. Uh, and then you continue holding for kind of that you know, quote unquote infinite return, if you will, where you don't have money in the deal. Gotcha. Now, in order to typically, in order to invest in a private placement, I mean, not typically, 
uh, often you have to be an accredited investor. Were you an accredited investor when you when you started? Correct. Yeah. So a lot of the space is, but but there's something that I should point out there too. So a lot of the offerings are accredited investor only. However, there are also a lot of operators operating under a 506B private placement, B as in boy, where they can, if they choose, they can take on 35 sophisticated investors that may not be accredited, but they have the know-how to understand the deal, the ins and outs, the risks, you know, the fact that it's not liquid, um, you know, and so they could potentially participate in the offering. So you're not really going to see that much of a difference in, in those types of deals between a B and a C. It's just the type of um, legal offering that they're doing. So Ashcroft does 506C, C is in Charlie, where they can only take on accredited investors in their deals without uh, exception. So something to definitely uh, connect with the sponsor and ask that upfront if you are a non-accredited investor. For those that don't know that definition, it's a million dollar net worth, excluding your owner-occupied home, uh, whether you're single or married or you can qualify under income. So it's 200,000 for an individual for the last two years with expectations of meeting the same in the current year, or 300,000 as a married couple for the last two years with the expectation of doing the same in the current year. So um, that's an SEC uh, definition of it, but just know that uh, whether you meet that criteria or not, there's still opportunities on both sides. It'll depend on the operator and the type of offering. Gotcha. Uh, and the, the SEC put that, and that the credit investor uh, definition has been in place since the 30s, hasn't it? I mean, they basically came back from the, the crash and the Great Depression. They're basically trying to protect investors yeah. from being taken advantage of and losing losing everything. It should probably be updated, but, you know, we'll see. But, yeah, uh, yeah the, the, with the, they also have, by the way, a Regulation A, uh, which is a whole different type. It's more expensive and, and longer process to get that in place. But you can take an unlimited amount of non-accredited,s and my point being with that is there's a huge movement right now for folks who are non-accredited wanting to participate in private placements, and so there's a lot of pressure right now on the SEC to kind of amend those guidelines or lessen them uh, to you know, and we'll see what happens with that. But maybe folks working in you know finance professions that have licenses like a Series Seven or Sixty Three they potentially might be able to qualify down the road if they change that definition uh, to where they could participate in these offerings, though they may not meet that net worth or income requirement. Is there more um, risk in the in doing the deals where you've got um, offerings or whatever, where you've got the non-accredited and sophisticated investors? That would be, I guess, subjective. I mean, everyone will probably have a different take on that. I, I mean, the risk is, I suppose, that the individual is putting up a certain amount of their net worth that they may need for other reasons. And this is why this came into play in the first place is you, before this definition, you could have people throw in their life savings into a deal. And then six months later, medical emergency, I need my money back. Well, you can't get it. And so that's definitely one of the drawbacks to private placements, unlike a REIT or, or a stock or something. You can't just sell it tomorrow and get money back. The money's used. I mean, it's used for a down payment. It's sent to the lender. It's used for rehabs on the project and construction costs. So there isn't just a, a bank account sitting there with $100 million in it. And so that's something to think about up front. 
is that, you know, though a business plan could say this is going to be potentially a five-year hold, it could be seven, it could be eight, it could be 10. So just know that going in that, you know, if you're going to put 50,000 in or 100,000, you may not see that for years and years. And I wouldn't plan on it either. So you, um, you're saying that that money is gone, but you, you take monthly payments. So is what, where does that come from? Correct. Yeah. So the, the types of deals that I target personally, because passive income is my income, uh, are, are monthly distributions that are sent from the property after uh, they're from rent collections and other revenue generating items on each property. And by the way, the industry norm is, is quarterly. And this is another important key, you know, when you're identifying your own criteria, certainly ask this up front. I made that mistake once I assumed for some reason it was quarterly and it was actually whatever they felt they were going to do. So there was a a full 12 months that went by. I got no distribution. So something to think about. Um, But yeah, it's from rent collection and other revenue generating items on the property. So income comes in, you pay the property management, you pay the uh, you know, the mortgage and the property tax and all the expenses, what's left over can be deemed a distribution to investors if the operator chooses to do so. So, Gotcha. Um, so with an accredited investor, that's very clearly defined by the SEC. Is there a definition of what qualifies as a sophisticated investor or is it a little more loosey-goosey? That's a good question. It, it it actually is defined. I don't know the exact verbatim definition, but it's it's basically um, kind of as I alluded to earlier. It's the ability whether you're using a advisor or you're just an individual that you are shown and explained to all the risks associated, and that you fully understand beyond a reasonable doubt of what you're investing in and all of the ins and outs and the private uh, placement memorandum and the operating agreement is that you have the know-how to comprehend and understand that. And that's critically important to the SEC for the reasons that we also discussed earlier uh, to know that someone's not going to make this investment being, you know, thinking that they're sophisticated, but then not understanding that they can't get their money back in 12 months if they need it. So uh, so it, the idea in the SEC's mind, I, I guess, is if you are accredited, you can afford to lose the money anyhow. If you've got over a million dollars and you put in 50 and lose it, it's not going to bankrupt you, right? So that's kind of the philosophy behind that. Sense. So when someone is considering investing in a private placement, uh, what are some tips for vetting the sponsor? That's a good question. So that's critically important, by the way. When I started investing, I did it all backwards. And I would take way too much emphasis on the deal itself. And then I would consider the market. And last, I would look at the team. It, To me, in my opinion, it's the exact opposite. You need to start vetting the operator, their track record, their experience. Do you get along with them? Is your you know philosophy on investing aligned? You know, this is this is a relationship business. You're going to be in monthly communication or quarterly communication for years with these folks. You definitely want to know them. You definitely want to trust them uh, and, and not make that mistake of finding out six months later that this is their first deal and they're kind of gambling with your money and hoping it goes well. Um, so, you know, to, to that point, understanding your own criteria is critical. Uh, just like I had to write down with my wife 
we actually weren't married at the time, but we sat down to, to say, look, we're, we're planning on doing this long term. So what's going to be important for us? We identified states that we really liked, uh, asset types that we preferred, um, you know, certain structures that we look for. We love the value add component, the monthly distribution. So knowing all of that up front is extremely helpful so that today when I get sent a deal because I'm on everybody's deal list and it says new development deal in, you know, I don't know, Sacramento, California, I, I'm not interested. That's just not a market I'm in and I don't do new development and it doesn't do monthly distribution. So pass, you know, and that makes it a lot easier than when I started and I'm trying to look at all these different things and think, I don't know, is this one good? Is this one good? <laughs> you know, so it kind of starts with self-reflection. Yeah, have that criteria already mapped out so that you're yeah. you don't even have to choose. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Just ask the question. <laughs> we, pardon us, sometimes we get into these fights. <laughs> <laughs> if works. I'm not moving fast enough, just ask it yourself instead That's a super of poking me. Question. <laughs> no, no, I just No, was... not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No. Um, uh, are there any red flags that you look for when you're vetting an, uh, a, excuse me, vetting a sponsor or a deal or a deal? Yeah. 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 There definitely are. So, uh, you know, I always recommend having several conversations before investing with the sponsorship team, both deal specific and about them individually, background, track record. So, red flags usually come up when someone's stumbling. Uh, to answer a question, or it seems like they're trying to avoid it, you know, such as, you know, have you ever had a deal that's that's gone south? And what happened with that, you know, and if they're trying to skirt around it, not really kind of well, it's, you know, then that could be a red flag. Um, uh, backgrounds of individuals, any criminal background, things like that, if they seem real skittish, or, you know, they don't allow a background check or something that could be a red flag. Not having a PPM, private memorandum, very few exceptions to not having one of those, but uh, definitely seeing one of those types of offerings. Um, you know, just, just general gut checks. If you're the type of person that has any type of intuition, uh, that's what I, you know, I value that very highly. If just something doesn't sit right as I'm speaking with someone and I keep thinking, I can't pinpoint this, but it just, it's weird. It seems fishy. I don't know then, uh, you know, why, why even risk it? I just move on because there's plenty of deals to be had. So, Well, it's important to remember that if, if you don't like the person, this is somebody you're going to be in a, a, some sort of a relationship with for anywhere from 12 months to seven years or however long the deal lasts. And if you don't like talking to them, uh, both from the operator standpoint and the, the investor standpoint, I don't, I don't want to be involved with that person. If I don't like you, I don't want to be involved with you. And it's still, that, that's a great point. It's still knowing yourself too. So I like frequent communication, not over the top, but in other words, if I call a sponsor, cause I have a question, I don't want to be responded to seven days later or, or I email them. Right. So I look for a fast response. That's one of the things that Ashcroft that stood out when I started investing with them was <laughs> Joe, I'm sure, you know, you, you guys know this, but Joe Fairless, it's like, I, I forget what it was, a text or a phone call. It was on a Sunday at like 9 a.m. He answers his phone. Yeah, how can I help? You know, it's like, whoa, no, I didn't expect you to answer. You know, <laughs> I was just, you can get back with me tomorrow. But it's that type of interaction that I look for as well. Um, that's just a personal preference. So, 
Knowing we've, yourself. We've had that exact same experience. I literally, I think just this last weekend had the exact same kind of phone call with Joe where I had a question and I just wanted to leave him a message. I was trying mm -hmm. to help, you know, I was trying to, I had some paperwork I had to fill out and I picked up the phone and I called him and he answered and, was, and I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, you know? And, and he was like, no, 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 of course you should call me with this question. So. <laughs> oh. Yep, exactly. So it's, it's so much to do with the team and there's a lot of syndicators out there that are kind of the, the one man or one woman show and that can be fine, but it's also great to have a team just in case, you know, Joe or anybody is, is not in the office. He actually is on a vacation that, there's investor relations or, or a code GP or just someone else that you can get your question answered from. Uh, just another story I had partnered with different operator and uh, it was somewhat urgent. It was, I think I'd switched bank accounts or something and they were about to send a, a pretty substantial wire and I was trying to, you know, I couldn't get a hold of them. So a little bit terrifying, you know? So uh, anyway, it's important. Yeah. Have you had, you know, you're, you've been in 28, 30 deals. Have you had any where you were like, oh God, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so some of the earlier on ones, I, I should have vetted the teams a lot heavier. It's just, you know, just general, whatever you want to call it, laziness, non-responsiveness, lack of experience, all these kinds of things. Um, the deals themselves actually turned out fine, uh, which is why I kind of look at it, the team, the market. The deal right so we had we had two out of three in place and uh <laughs> it, it worked out not to say it always will but um yeah i just i i just feel like if if you're with a trusted operator that's very transparent that you align with doing a deal that matches your criteria they have the experience they have the track record they specialize in that sector all the time one after the next everybody knows them blah 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 endless examples well then they're probably going to be looking in good markets right? Because they have the experience and track record. And they're probably going to be bringing a good deal. They're investing in it themselves, number one. And number two, they've done it time and time again and have proof to show for it. So uh, that's why I kind of put the, the hierarchy in that order. Makes sense. So, yes, <laughs> living through a pandemic. <laughs> Seems yeah. like it'll never end. <laughs> um, have have you seen what are there any changes or um you know adjustments that you see happening in this model and private placements that are due to covid yeah good question uh, obviously on everyone's mind right now um i don't know when this podcast will be released but you know soonish what the end of june <laughs> july first ish so i think back in march as things started getting put on shutdown and lockdown and, and everyone, the fears in the market and the stock markets, you know, dropping 30%, all these kinds of things. Um, it, it was, it was a very unsettling time. No one really had any answers. No one knew how rent collections were going to pan out. Uh, it was just scary. A lot of syndicator, you know, they backed out of deals that they were under contract with. They stopped looking for new deals. Everyone just went on like pump the brakes. Let's wait and see. And now we've been able to see, March and April and May and June, and here we are, July. And th the important thing to, to think about or to recognize is real estate's not created equal. Real estate is a huge, broad, vague category. I mean, you have vacation rentals and single family and various markets and multifamily value add, multifamily new development, multifamily D class properties, um, you know, opportunistic deals where occupancy is really low. These all hold their own risk profiles. 
So it's not just equal. It's not I, like the thing that drives me crazy on the news of the headlines, like real estate's going to crash. Well, what the, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. you know, what real estate's going to, where's it going to, you know? Yeah. So anyway, in my portfolio, um, there hasn't been a tremendous impact so far. Fingers crossed. All distributions are still happening. Occupancy has taken a, a mediocre slight dip over across the board not to the extent of we can't send a distribution or we're in trouble or we have to do a capital call. Um, so we'll see how things pan out longer term. We'll see how this whole recession, so to speak, unfolds. But um, as for now, I think affordable housing has been less affected, without a doubt, it has yeah. been less affected than, say, office, retail, things like that. So um and syndications are all over. I mean, you can do a syndication with office and retail and, and parking lots and all kinds of stuff. So just, again, it gets back to you, your philosophy, your criteria. I spent years back testing because I didn't have the personal experience of multifamily during the last recession. Um, so I spent a lot of years back testing the idea of multifamily to take a look at the stats on mm -hmm. what happened in 08, 09, 2010 in these types of private placements. Yeah. And, uh, you know, statistically, a lot of them fared out quite well. And uh, so that that was a good sign for me. I knew that I wanted to be in something for the long term. I didn't want to try to learn and ramp up into something that oh, doesn't work anymore. I got to start over now. What am I going to invest in and switch the Bitcoin or something? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so anyway, yeah, it, it's important to keep up with that, those kinds of stats as well. Yeah. Well, I share your frustration. I'm sorry. Uh, I share your frustration about, you know, the media and, and also just my friends who are like, oh, I heard commercial real estate is going to just completely crash. And I'm like, okay, well, where, which asset class in commercial real estate are in self-storage, multifamily, hotels, uh, industrial. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and, yeah. and it's also when people say, you know, the, the real estate market's going to crash. Well, again, where? You know, I yeah. mean, there's, it's so, it's a real, it's so local, it's asset specific, it's, you know, demographic specific. And, and well, and this, this, the, the, what's, what this is doing to the economy is so different from like from 2008 or like the reasons behind it and, and what's driving it. So, you know, we've talked about in a couple other, um, with a couple other people that, you know, here in Vegas, we're more likely to have an issue than somewhere else because we are, almost entirely, you know, vacation based. And so, you know, our economy, our small economy is probably going to be affected pretty strongly, but, and, but there's other vacation markets that aren't because they're like beach communities where people can drive there more easily. And so those ones might not take a hit where it's like Vegas, you have to mostly fly in and that's just not happening. So it's so interesting because yeah. it's not even, it's the same market. It's still vacation market, but it's still like, even within mm -hmm. that, you know, you're looking at the local. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, apartment investing is all about jobs, right? And so yeah. that's why it's important to look for the diversification in the job market, not to maybe invest in a deal that was like Detroit back in the day, you know, where you've got one primary type of sector or employer, or you're right next door to something like that, that employs, you know, 5,000 mm -hmm. people, and then all of a sudden they go under, well, what's that do to your property? So uh, yeah, that, that's a great point uh, to look at. Not created equal. Every deal is different too. And, you know, you can imagine how maybe a apartment community in say April and May held up next to a hospital employing, you know, medical staff, 
versus one next to, I don't know, an airport or, or shopping center or something mm-hmm. that, that got somewhat shut down. So uh, it just matters. I mean, all that stuff matters. So take them one at a time. And, and that's the whole thing. Investing through this pandemic, I am still investing uh, right now and last month and in March closed on a property. Uh, but these deals were factoring in the what ifs, you know, some of them got huge seller concessions because of the unknown and others were just already extremely conservative with their structure to where we had a huge buffer already built in. So, um, yeah, it's still, you can't just generalize and just say, you know, multifamilies on pause for 12 months. It just doesn't work that way. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you first got started, I mean, you, with real estate, generally you, obviously kind of self-educated yourself. You did a lot of different things. When you got started with syndications, um, how did you go about uh, educating yourself? Yeah, that's a good point. So I, you know, one of my personal regrets is never in 2009, 10, 11, 12, not attending real estate meetup groups, not listening to a lot of podcasts, only reading one or two books a year, all these kinds of things. I wish I would have quadrupled down on that education, it would have cut that learning curve. And I probably would have been on this track a little sooner. Um, But in general, what I did is I so 2015 was such a crazy year for me, I was oil was crashing, I was working in the Middle East, I was already working a 50 50 schedule. So I worked a month on and a month off. So I had a lot of time at home, just to do whatever I wanted, which I took that advantage to self educate. And then what was crazy is that we got it was optional to go back for your shift at the latter part of that year. And so I opted out of two of my shifts. So I actually had four months off in a row, which I haven't had since, you know, I don't even know high school. And um, so I took that time to triple down on, on reading. I read 52 books that year. I listened to as many podcasts as I could. I attended webinars, uh, got a couple mentors, coaches. I just did a lot to, you know, figure out how I could be passive and how this could all actually work, to, you know, in my favor of what I really wanted, which is really the something I talk about is, is like the time freedom. It's the ability to free up my time, which is what I wanted more than anything coming out of that particular industry is just if I want to travel, I want to travel. If I want to work part time, I want to work part time. If I don't want to work, I don't want to work. So how, how can I get there? How can I take those ideas and actually make that happen? That's what 2015 was all about. And those were some of the things that I did to self-educate. Well, and it's important to remember, I've often heard people give advice to aspiring real estate investors. You say, okay, you want to invest in real estate. Are you a high earner right now? I mean, are you somebody who's got a job that's already earning you a lot of money um, or a business that's earning you a lot of money? You might be better off just focusing on continuing to make that money and yeah. and give up some control and put mm-hmm. the place the money with you know a diversified group of of sponsors and asset classes and geographies and continue to just focus on what it is that you do well until you've gotten to the point where you're making enough money from the the investments that you know you can drop down and work less yeah to my surprise, uh, going into the space, my assumption was up front that these are highly, highly sophisticated real estate 
professionals that know so much, but when you get in it, it's like, wait a second, they're doctors, dentists, lawyer, attorney, business owner, professional athlete, you know, they're, they're folks to exactly your point. They're high income earners that don't want to take their eye off the ball because that's where they make their money. And so they just want to, you know, passively invest and maybe they don't want hundred percent in the stock market. And that's really what the industry's comprised of. Is that our doorbell from the other house that we <laughs> yes. almost don't own yet? <laughs> we still <laughs> might want to. You might want to uh, remove that from yeah. from the the uh, Alexa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do we have, maybe we have a delivery or something. Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, so, so let's talk time commitment because that's a, you know, that's a big factor for somebody who's, uh, yeah. you know, looking into this, uh, what does, cause I know, I know you, you know, you're in investor relations with Ashcroft, which is now your job, but as far as it goes with a passive investment, what does the time commitment look like for the average investor when they're looking at investing in something like this? That's a good question. So the beauty of it is you can be almost as active as you want to be. So I know some full-time passive investors, kind of like I am, but they like to be very hands-on in the sense of following up with sponsors and meeting with them and going to fly out to the properties and walk the units. And they're like constantly in this due diligence and keeping up with everything kind of flow. Um, and then you've got the folks that, like we just pointed out, the doctor, dentist, lawyer, attorney, engineer, a lot of these folks like to just read over the, the PPM and the overview, have a couple phone conversations and say, fine, here's 50 grand, send me the monthly updates. And that's it. It's hands off. It's passive. You know? So I think what <laughs> the, the misconception in the single family space, for me anyway, was thinking I could scale this huge portfolio up passively and that I would have all these tenants never having issues. The properties were always perfect. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking. And um, that's the thing to, to point out is you may have one, two, three, four single family homes, and you could somewhat call that passive. But I guarantee it, even with property managers, you get it up to 20 or 30 or 40 it is not passive. It is never going to be passive. And you still, at the end of the day, have to make the decisions anyhow, even if you put property managers and you never deal with rent collection or leasing or turnover or cleaning or anything, it's still, hey, the roof's got to be replaced. What do you want to do? Patch it? Repair it? You know, hot water tank went out, flooded your house. What do you want to do? Do you want to call that insurance company? Whatever. So um, yeah, it, it just, it's really a model that, that truly is or can be as passive as investing in, in REITs and publicly traded stocks, things like that. You can, you can be hands-on with that stuff too, to, to an extent. Uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go, 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 go. All go. right. So, so uh, obviously, I know the answer to this question, but we got to ask it. Uh, is this the kind of thing that you could do from anywhere in the world? So, I love the quote. I was inspired with this a long time ago, maybe as I was getting involved with with this sector. But um, real estate guys or whoever coined it. So, live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. I love that. And I still, I use that all the time today. And that's a hundred percent of my philosophy. And so, you know, we've lived in Colorado and we've lived in Florida and, you know, yes. I mean, to answer your question, yes. If, if you can keep a, a U.S. residency in some form or fashion, then, you know, the, the world is your oyster. <laughs> so uh, that's the beauty of it. And again, back to diversification, 
Uh, Colorado was a great market when I was investing in it from 09 to 2015. I had a great bull run. It was fantastic. But, uh, you know, I don't want to be investing here today, for example. So it's nice to be able to pick other markets that I feel are stronger, better uh, prone to growth. And you may lean, you know, you may be giving up some control, but you're also leaning on the market experts for an area that you may not be familiar with. Yeah. So the way I approach that is I read high level research. So I look at things like, you know, tenant, landlord laws, tax friendly states, where employers are relocating to migration trends of people, uh, all this kind of stuff. So then I pinpoint, oh, I like A, B, C, D, E, F, G states. So then when I then again, that's part of my criteria. So if someone's throwing me a deal and it's not one of those states, I'm probably not doing that deal unless they can convince me otherwise. And then I let the, the sponsor fill me in on the very specific sub-market in that state. You know, why should I be invested in Irving, Texas? I don't know anything about Irving, Texas. I know quite a bit about Texas. Uh, and so I just take it from there. And if I like what they have to say in the three-mile, five-mile, seven-mile radius makes sense uh, for the things that we talked about earlier, then I'm, I'm probably going to do a deal like that. Well, Travis, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our listeners want to learn more about you, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, so at the beginning, you pointed out the Calendly. You can also go to ashcroftcapital.com forward slash connect with Travis. That's actually where the guide is at. And this guide is uh, it's called Understanding Private Placements in Real Estate. It's a 20-page free PDF. You can download it. There's no catch there. So uh, check that guide out. It's it's a lot of things that we talked about. It's how to vet operators and sponsors and uh, terminology in the industry and things like that. So uh, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and Bigger Pockets and you know, all of those social media platforms uh, at Passive Investor Tips. Okay, we'll put awesome. those all in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being part of the show today. Thanks, Travis. You bet. Okay, that was Travis Watts from Ashcroft Capital. Uh, again, to schedule a, a free Q&A with Travis and get a free PDF guide on understanding real estate private placements, uh, go to calendly.com slash Travis Watts. Uh, and that link will also be in the show notes. And he also mentioned ashcroftcapital.com slash connect with Travis, I think is what it was. Again, yes, and he said that was notes. where the PDF is. Gotcha. I think the other one's just scheduling. Yep. Okay. So was there a key lesson learned for you on this one? Um, I think uh, what I liked when he was talking about um, pre-deciding where you're going to invest. So, uh, you know, I think that's something that can be really important. And in, in when you're looking at a lot of things, even not just, uh, even in other non-real estate arenas. Sorry, I'm not articulating this well. Um, but I think it's a good strategy when you know you're going to have to make a lot of choices, you choose ahead of time, at least some of it. Um, so you reduce the decision fatigue and you allow yourself brain power, um, to, to make other decisions. Um, so you've, you know, you don't have to, you already know that you invest in XYZ places. And so if you see something that's in a different place, you're probably just going to be no right off the bat. Um, and then you don't, you don't have to worry about that. It's just already done. Um, so I liked that concept and I, I think it can probably be applied somewhere else 
that's not real estate, like I said, but I don't have a good example right now because yeah. I can't think of one. <laughs> I just well, know that you could. <laughs> well, again, I think it's, it, it's important to just narrow down and focus a little bit. You know, yeah, we, yeah. we can get, you know, we can, you know, we're overwhelmed by choice in the modern world. Um, yeah. And uh, sometimes it's better to just listen, just cut through, cut yeah. through everything and just sort yeah. of, you know, narrow down. Like, yeah. I mean, I thought of something. Okay. <laughs> you Go know? for so it. So let's talk about, it's, you know, non-real estate. So you're looking at like products. If you already know that you want um, you know, a, a more sustainable option owned by women, you know, whatever, then you can look for that company and then you can look for the product within that company. So gotcha. same kind of idea when you're, when you're looking for something, if you narrow down some of the big priorities, then you, you just have to look at the small stuff later. Yeah. And as it relates to real estate, I mean, he talked about, you know, looking for a specific, specific strategy, which for him was value add, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, some people, it means he rules out new development. Uh, you know, he liked multifamily, he liked monthly distributions. Um, he liked five-year holds, you know, yeah. there's, there's all yeah. those things, you know, and he likes, you know, then he likes specific states and things like that. So just sort of narrowing down your focus. So you're not just looking at the entire world and trying to, to pull a needle out of the haystack. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, it was to become a high level expert on, um, the markets, you know, I mean, he, he said he spends a lot of time, um, getting to know the states that he wants to invest in. Um, you know, he doesn't worry about the, the specific micro market, um, in self-storage and with multifamily, you know, you're looking at a micro market that's maybe three to five miles. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he gets to know the states really well and yeah. it's into the landlord laws and things like that. And my guess is he also probably does that with asset classes as well. You don't need to become an absolute expert in the asset class, yeah. but become a, a, a student of it and understand it at a high level. Yeah. And then let the operator be the one who's the expert. You focus on uh, what it is that you do best earning money, whether that be, you know, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, um, you're a business owner. Um, you're a real estate investor, you know, there's a lot of real estate investors I know that invest in, you know, they're active real estate investors doing house flipping and, uh, single family homes, vacation rentals, things like that. And then they roll that money into syndications, yeah. uh, to diversify. So focus on what you, your core competency. Awesome. All right. How much money did it take for him to get started? $50,000, which is a, a very typical, um, initial uh, investment in a syndication. Yeah. 50 to 100. Correct. Yeah. Um, time. We didn't get into specifics, but, I but mean, it's, it's low. Yeah. I mean, you, and really well, you it can was put, variable. It yeah, was like, choose some your own adventure. Yeah. I mean, there's some people who are, like he said, that will really dig into things and, and they'll spend hours and hours, uh, digging into a, a private placement memo. And then there's, you know, other people that will spend a couple of hours, uh, and then a couple of phone calls with the, the operator and they're, yeah. they're good to go. They're just like, Hey, just send me, you know, send me the updates and send me my checks. Yeah. My guess is that typically it's probably a small number of hours yeah, it's, a, a month yeah. or every few months, you know, like it's, it's probably the, the lower levels, probably like an hour a yes. month yes. of just sort of like looking at reports or whatever comes out from the operator. Exactly. 
Exactly. Could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? As long as you have a U.S. residence. Yes, and that's not entirely true. I know we've interviewed Reed Goosens in the past, uh, and Reed really specializes in allowing, and uh, David Thompson as well. If you look back, and I don't know the episodes right now, forgive me. Uh, It'll be in the show notes. We do have the show notes. We'll We'll put links for those shows in there. But you can... Uh, they specialize in actually taking money from foreign investors, um, and it, they'd be the ones to to ask how to do that. But uh, I do yeah. know that you can do it. So. Yeah, generally speaking, though, it's probably easier if you have a, a U.S. residence. Yes, yes, <laughs> gotcha. Okay, again, once again, that was Travis Watts from Ashcroft Capital, and just a, a pass full time passive investor. So awesome, that was fun. All right, let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go. If you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.